Welcome to Courageous Medicine for the Climate Health Crisis, the podcast for doctors, nurses, and medical professionals organizing to confront the climate health emergency. I'm your host, Dr. Ashley McClure, a primary care physician, medical community climate organizer, and mom. Join me for these personal conversations with inspirational colleagues and visionary health equity advocates who are taking our oath to do no harm as a call to action to lead our medical community and healthcare institutions in calling for equitable climate action in order to realize the healthier, safer, and fairer world that is possible for all our children. Welcome to our newest episode of Courageous Medicine for the Climate Health Crisis, where I get to introduce you to Dr. Pedja Stojazic, who learned about the power of people to change the world when he worked with other youth to stop the HIV epidemic in Serbia under the dictatorship of Milosevic. Listen in for his insight in overcoming great odds in the interest of public health and the practice that he prescribes that can both reignite the beautiful values that led each of us to originally go into medicine and solve the climate health crisis at the same time. Listen in to get inspired for the power of people organizing for health. I came across your work first when I was applying for the health equity program, saw your bio, and I was like, oh, wow, what an amazing you know, combination of physician, social movement leader, and social medicine you teach, I believe, also. So that's how I came across your work. Yeah, it'd be wonderful if you could introduce yourself to our listeners beyond the little blurb that, I, that I've seen online. Hi, everyone. My name is Peja Stojic, and I'm a father, a lifelong activist, and someone who is, I would say, like intellectual pessimist, but action optimist for the work we are doing. And I, in Melrose, Massachusetts, my work has been in, in the arena of enabling healthcare professionals and healthcare leaders to use community organizing and activism skills to advance the causes that they deeply believe in. Where did the spark for this work come from? Was it, were you like in elementary school or middle school or what was the first seed? Ashley, that's a, that's a great question. I'm originally from Belgrade, Serbia, and uh, I grew up in a, in, a, in a country that was in the 90s. We, had a, we were in the, in the middle of the war, in the, in the middle of the civil war. And, and that was mostly kind of like my experience of, actually, I always joke about it. Like I changed four countries without moving because I was born in Yugoslavia and then we became another Yugoslavia and then became Serbian Montenegro and then eventually Serbia. So four passports without, without actually changing the place. But aside from that, like there were two, I think, pivotal things for me like to, to embrace this work and think about it in a different way. One of the, one of the things was at the, at the time, there was a, there was a huge uh, epidemic of HIV AIDS in Eastern Europe. And I was in high school and it was just so interesting because the government just didn't care about that. Because Milosevic, who was, a, who was a, a Serbian dictator, was actually, he was busy engaging in war. And but we, were, we were not officially in war, but we were actually officially in, 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 in war with Croatia and Bosnia. And, and he just didn't care about those kind of stuff. It was something that was left as a topic for young people to deal with. And as a, as a young person, I remember we had this, you know, there was a youth center next to my high school. And we were gathering in a, in a small office there and we asked ourselves a question, what are we going to do about this epidemic? Like, you know, it's, it's affecting us in, in, in different ways. There's a, it was a little scary. We didn't know what to do about it. 
and those types of things. And, and people said like, well, why, why don't we do something about it? We started this kind of like peer education program for, for young people. We started educating young people in schools. Like there were, there were some education that we picked up. It was not online, but it was the books that we picked up at the time about peer education, actually by, by the framework developed from a guy, guy from New York uh, about peer education and, and reproductive health and rights. And it was so interesting because the fact that government didn't care about it was a blessing and a curse. Like it was a blessing because we could do anything. Like it was literally, we could do anything. We can, you know, we, we started with a peer education, then we grew up and started doing uh, campaigns on the occasion of 1st of December. And we did a lot of stuff. Like we had, we put a condom on a big obelisk in the middle of the Belgrade during the night because it was crazy enough that even the police didn't believe that somebody would be crazy to do that without the permission to do it, <laughs> you know? Our friends were there and then the police approached them and they said, like, what are you doing? And they said, like, we're putting this thing. And they're like, okay, like, probably, probably you have a permission because nobody, especially in the dictatorship, nobody would be willing to do something like that without actually getting the permission from police. All that to say is that everything was possible for us. And we saw the power. That was the blessing side. But the curse side of it was the fact that there was zero budget. One could argue that was also a blessing in disguise because we also learned that the people power is actually much more powerful than any budget that someone can give you because you can have a budget and have zero impact. For us, it was the opposite. Like we didn't have the budget at all, but our impact was growing and growing and across the country. And, and we had at some point like over 5,000 young people, not mobilized for one action, but actually organized in, in 12 different chapters and, and doing the work on an everyday basis. In retrospect, you know, when you look back on some of those things, like I always think about there was there was a little bit of escapism, you know, <laughs> in all of that because that was our that was our space. We had our agency there, where the reality around us, especially for you know for for young people in in high school, was quite the opposite. Like you didn't have a lot of agency in terms of what was going on around you, and and sometimes people will be taken from the street and taken to the taken to the front in Bosnia and Croatia, and you never see them again. And it was really hard. But parallel to that, which was really interesting, and there was also, like, at some point, the, the youth movement uh, called Otpor to, to actually fight against Milosevic. And, and, and that was the one that, that actually eventually got rid of him. Because you think about all those, you know, interventions that there was a military intervention in, in 1999, like NATO bombing. There were, there were other, like, you know, political sanctions, economical sanctions and all that. He was untouchable by that. Like he was almost like building power off of that. But then the youth movement called Otpor in, in, in 2000, again, using the people power, was the one that got rid of him. And I was, I was not a leader of that movement in any way. I was a participant in that movement. But it also shaped my understanding of the world. Because on one side, you know, we had this power with that we did around HIV AIDS, that we created power to create something that didn't exist before, that to educate people to grow. And then there was this power over where you have people being able to change, like even something as big as a, as a, as a dictator who everybody thought will never change or, or never be able to, to be dismantled. And it's such an interesting thing in many ways, because I've seen both worlds and that shaped my, my understanding of, of how, how things work. And later on, like when I get to, into the medical school, it was also something that was shaping my understanding of medicine as well. And my point there is like medicine was so limiting. 
I, I think it was in many ways, you know, a novel thing to do. And, and of course, like, you know, I, I have deep respect for healthcare professionals and my colleagues and physicians and nurses. But what was what was striking about it is the limitation of what is it actually that you can do to change some of the structural problems that exist. That was the real you know, a real problem for me because uh, I just couldn't deal with the with the fact that we are not able, we are just not able to uh, to change those things, and and that a lot of my colleagues were feeling the pain of it, including myself. The, the short amount of time that that I was I was practicing, oh my goodness, you see the pain of the world, but you know, you feel like you're there's no not a lot of things you can do about it, and yet. You know, I knew that there is a lot of things you can do about it. And that was my experience outside of the medicine. I think that's where my passion for this work is growing up is, is really, really, I think right now here, what I'm seeing here in the United States is the same type of, how to say, like powerlessness of caregivers, but at the same time, we do hold a lot of power and we can use that power to enable people power to achieve some of those structural changes that we want. And I know you're doing that work big time. I think that's the... That's kind of like where my motivation for this work is coming from. Amazing. There's so much I want to go back to. What made you go to medical school? I work with public narrative and I, I train people in, in public narrative as one of the one of the organizing practices of kind of like how do you do community organizing and activism. Uh, and for, for the listeners, public narrative is a skill of telling the story and, and really not just telling the story, but understanding your own story so you can engage and motivate others in the in, in the work that you do. And I worked on my public narrative for for, for quite a bit, <laughs> this, trying to discover and answer that question. So I, I just want to say like, this is not coming out of this, just this interview, but it's it's been a work for a while. I used to say like, oh, I always knew I'm going to be a doctor, which is kind of like, you know, it's not a... It's not really true. And I think most of the doctors will say that, but in reality, that will not be true. Uh, so for me, it was, um, I grew up in a, in, in a big family. My, my father was one of six siblings. You can imagine, like, it's like a snowflake. Like, you have six siblings, they all have kids. And so for my, my childhood was always like 40, 50 people, you know, gathering in, in my, you know, grandmother's backyard and, and kind of like doing stuff together and, and all of that. When I was, uh, I, was, I was seven, I believe, I witnessed my father having a heart attack. I entered in the room and, and, and saw him literally suffocating and, and being like completely white and basically not being able to speak. And I went out and was scared, called my, my uncle Raka, who was a big guy. He was a police officer. And, you know, I remembered him shouting, like, we need a doctor, we need a doctor. And, you know, when you're a kid, like, you, you kind of interpret those things as like, Oh, to be a doctor is to sell, save your dad. Like, is 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 that's how you save your family? And interestingly enough, like in my family, there were there were no doctors. And it was later on, actually, when I got into the medical school, that my mother told me a story that my father wanted to be a doctor, but he couldn't get into the medical school even in communism because they were poor. Basically, even in in the country that officially had like education being available to everybody, like that, the medical school was only reserved for those who were part of the equal, but like, you know, like from the George Orwell, like all animals are equal, some are more equal than others. Like this mm-hmm. was exactly that. And, you know, it's interesting because my father ended up disappointed, ended up going to the law school. I guess like his rationale was like going to fight this. Um, and being the, the best students of his student of his class, like in the whole university which was kind of like such a bummer because imagine what he would do if he went into medicine. But but for me, that was kind of like a legacy of that. My mother didn't tell me though that before I get I got into medical school and, and then she told me that story, which was really interesting. But all that to say is that that's what shaped my 
my belief that that actually the, the, the healing profession is the way to to protect your family. It was something that, that I always thought about later on. However, that experience and also learning that about him and also learning that the reason why he was sick and he had a heart attack was because he was smoking two packs a day and, and he was, you know, there was not enough social support around him to, to really address some of those bigger societal problems that were happening at the time in, in, in Yugoslavia. Like, probably that's the real reason. And, and that got me into public health and, and thinking about you know, okay, what what we can do about those things? Because that's the neglected part of medicine. Quite honestly, there was this, you know, the other interaction was also during the medical school, there was this perception that that type of work is less worthy. It was such a dissonance for me because you remember at the same time I was in the medical school, we built that youth movement to address a big societal problem with only people power. And it was really effective and it has an impact. And, and, and we reached out many young people. I think we literally curbed the epidemic in Serbia at the time, which one could expect would be at the forefront of that because of the war circumstances. You know, we really did that. And, then, and yet in the, within the medical establishment, it was perceived as, as not worthy of, of something. And I tend to react to those things like, yeah, you think that's not worthy? I'm going to do right that. <laughs> <laughs> a little bit of a spite in, in me, kind of like to say, like, no, that's not going to, it's going to be different. So anyway, that's mm-hmm. a long answer to your question, but I, I think that's the uh, the motivation is coming from. So I think the metaphors are enormous. You said that the healing profession is a way to protect our families. I can totally resonate with that myself. And I mean, it brings me to what I am most activated on, which is the climate crisis. And I have had previous conversations with Don Berwick. And one of the ways that he talked about it was that if the healing professions in America, we'll just focus on America, which constitutes roughly 17% of our GDP, if we would stand up and become so vocal about the need for urgent climate action, we will change the direction and protect our families. What you're talking about, the kind of sense of not being able to change society that I think the medical profession really has, which is such an incredible contrast with, you know, when people are polled for who's the most trusted professions, it's nurses, doctors, and pharmacists. But we're not using that influence for the greatest good. And I think we don't believe we really have it or we don't know how to use it, maybe. Well, if you think about it, like, you know, I've been thinking about it a lot, like, but I, I think one of the things that I observed coming into into United States relatively recently, now it's been like 10 years though, like it feels like it's not that recent anymore, is the fact that there's an intentional effort to put those issues outside of the medicine. Because the message that I've heard talking to my my fellow doctors and nurses and, and health professionals in this country was that the system was telling you, and I'm, I'm interpreting here, maybe you will tell me if that's true, that is something you do on Sundays, but you don't do that as part of your job. You don't see that as part of your job. You know, you can protest on Sundays or afternoon or whenever you have time, but you do it on your own. You know, the fact that there are not enough spaces as well. So that's one challenge. It's like that the system is telling you, no, this is not what you should be doing. This is not what practicing medicine means. And it's all under the banner of depoliticizing things, which I think it makes sense. Like, you know, I think as a general principle, like you are to treat everyone and we are, but that doesn't correlate with the fact that, you know, think about climate change, it's affecting all of us. 
That's not a political issue for me. As Don Berwick, who I'm a big fan of, like would say it's a moral issue. It's a, it's a moral determinant of health. Like, you know, it's it's not even a bipartisan or partisan issue in any way or whatever. So there's that part of the equation. And the other one, which is really interesting, is that and the more and more I, I find that to be the mission that I'm, I'm trying to contribute, is that there are no spaces within the medical education for people to learn the skills of community organizing, of activism, of engaging and collaborating with others. It's just like there's no time for them. You know, you go through a residency program, which is a form of brainwashing, I would say, like, you know, uh, which we all went through. But, you know, but you think about it, like, you know, it's you're, you're sleep deprived, you're confined in a, a limited space, uh, you are being fed with a lot of new information. You, you use those those parameters and you will see like the, the idea of a cult behind it. <laughs> no, I'm just mm-hmm. joking about it, but it is in a way it's, it, it is that. It's almost like I, I've, I've listened to, I think, like our, our new, old and new uh, Surgeon General, Vivek Murthy, uh, giving a speech about how a part of our job is also to protect what people are coming into medicine with. <laughs> so people are coming into medicine with this passion, with this really, really, really dedication for healing and, and, and justice in many ways. And then they go through the medical school you know, like, and residency. And chances are that they will get out on the other side, like being completely either forgetting or being deprived of the ability to use that side of them. Anyway, all that to say, is I think like I was lucky enough and privileged enough that the life circumstances were giving me that what one could call like street education or community organizing education because that's what the only way we could deal with some of those things. But I strongly believe that that should be part of the uh, of the medical education and not just for young doctors and, and new medical students, for them, for sure, but also for, you know, practitioners like yourself and, and those mid-career professionals, because we also have ability, uh, especially because that's where a lot of agency is coming at. Like you, you, you do have more power, if you want to put it that way, once you are established in your profession and you have certain credentials and credibility and and you can use that for the good or you can use that, you know, just to fulfill what is your responsibility. But sometimes that's not enough. The challenges that are in front of us, that's not enough. We need to do more. What is it about those values that that bring people to medicine that Vivek Murthy was talking about that we have to protect? What are those values as you see it? I haven't met a nurse or or a doctor or a, or or a CNA or anyone who is working in healthcare profession that doesn't have this deep passion about healing, of seeing others thriving. And it's such an interesting thing. I, I think that that is really that's why sometimes I, I forget. I, I started kind of like correcting myself that those are not healthcare professionals. Those are healers and caregivers. And I just, I just want to develop a practice of, of, of explaining us as a, as a community, as healers and caregivers. First of all, because it's much more inclusive, because caregiving and, and healing happens not just with the confined spaces of, of, of medical practice. It happens in the community. But the other thing is it, it signals the values. And I think that's what I've, I've seen. Like you, with a colleague here at the Cambridge Health Alliance, Garb Basu, I think you have interviewed him in one of the, the previous podcasts. We did this training for incoming medical residents uh, on, on public narrative and, and community organizing. And you can see that. Like you can see that as a, as a thread in every story. They're like this deep passion for healing and caregiving that is 
so in many ways, honestly, it's like so limited by medicine. Because when people talk about healing, they don't just see, you know, healing in the, oh yeah, I'm going to prescribe a drug or provide a particular service or whatever. They really see healing as much broader than that, like community and climate and, and think about the earth. And somehow that is the value that, that people come into it. And yet it might not be the value that they get out of it. In my opinion, it's a wake-up call for the profession to, if for nothing, for really pragmatic reasons, because the challenges that we are facing are just way bigger than any prescription or any procedures that we can do. That's just like what it is. We can, we tend to say like, oh, no, that's not like a, like, no, no it, it's, it's way bigger. Think about the major things that are, that we're facing right now, like including COVID, but in like a lot of it is also about inequities, injustices, about communities being neglected and disinvested in. We need that healing as well. The structural determinants, the social determinants, the moral determinants of health. We need to heal those bigger environments that either make us healthy or not. Is there a particular physician or nurse alive or who's died who you really think practice community medicine healing in like the way that, you know, the most beautiful potential that you could see, the upstream and downstream healthcare? Well, I, I, as I said before, like I'm always inspired by, by Don Berwick. I think he's a, he's a great leader, even up to this date, by pushing the, the medicine to be much more than it is. But if I have to go back, Jack Geiger is kind of like one of the, like, you know, and, and it's interesting because he was such a non-traditional doctor, you know, like in, in his life journey. And aside from that is, is also like the fact that I think he understood the, 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 the connection between democracy and, and healing and medicine in, in a deeper way. Like this whole idea of kind of like, I was always inspired by the fact of kind of like prescribing food. That's such a cool thing to do. It's a, such a radical act that, that in a way, like it's so, you know, in, 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 in activism, we call that like a moral jujitsu. You put people in a position that they can, how do you challenge that? Jack, don't, don't prescribe food. Like people don't need food. What, what, what are you talking about? So, so it's, it's really like, it's really tapping into what do we value and then provoking us to think about it seriously, like by, by what we do. So, so that was a source of inspiration. And I also think like if I've, I've read a lot about him and his work, there's also like, a, like, a, like there was a lot of, lot of sense of humor and, and positivity. You know, I, I think we need that a little bit in medicine, honestly. I, I think sometimes we're just too serious. We get excited about things and passionate, but it also has this doom kind of like, oh, you know, like everything is bad and we are here to help you. I think we need a little bit more, uh, more lightness and, and, and optimism, like, you know, for, for the stuff that we do. And I know we are doing serious things. Like I'm not, I'm not undermining what uh, healers and caregivers are doing, but I'm also thinking that the, part, the humor is also part of that. It should be part of that. Our communities and our fellow travelers, uh, you know, in this, in this journey that we, we can only achieve together, we really need that. Like we really need moments where we can have a good laugh. Would you be able to share a little bit about the coalition you're leading? It's a simple idea. It's really like, how do we uh, bring the practices of community organizing and activism to the work of caregivers and healers? It's really about that, because I, I do believe that, that it's a simple idea, but my hope is that by achieving that, we can actually, as a profession, we could do more. 
and not more in the sense of providing more because we are kind of good in provision, but more in a sense of enabling others to do the work together with us and alongside of the communities that we serve. It requires you know, the different way of listening. It requires different way of, of interacting with the, with the communities. It requires a lot of things, but there's also a practice of that. Like we don't have to reinvent the wheel of how do you do that? Because there's a long-standing tradition and I'm not claiming that I've invented it in any way, or I believe that no one can say like, oh, who was the first community organizer? You know, I don't know. You know, you look at any faith tradition in, in, in the history of the world and you, you see a lot of them. So those are kind of like 2,000, 3,000, even more, some of them long traditions, but is, is really how do, we, how do we learn from those traditions and bring them into, into the current moment? And especially in this case for healers and caregivers, like for, for people who are the, at, the front, at the forefront of, of, of seeing some of the pain and injustice that is happening in the world. And we are trying to, I'm, I'm trying to do that through different venues and different you know, places where that could happen, you know, through you know, some of the work with the, with the Cambridge Crypto Alliance and the, those trainings and, and then in other, in other places like, you know, doing some work with the immunization professionals right now who are, who are at the forefront of the uh, immunization efforts and, and others, and, and including yourself, you know. So it's a, it's a real privilege to, to see a passionate group of healthcare professionals and, and, as I said, like caregivers and healers who are trying to advance and do the work uh, you know, of addressing the climate change. We had a big day yesterday, like USA is, is joining the Paris Agreement. I'm feeling less embarrassed that I'm in this country right now uh, because that was, that was a question for the last four years of, of kind of like, you know, from my friends in, in Europe and Serbia, what are you doing there? Like, you know, you're not even uh, thinking about the planet, but at least that is now corrected. We still have a lot of work to do, but there's, there's a little bit of hope. But yeah, so, so that is the, the, the kind of work that we are trying to do. And I hope it's, it's a relatively new effort. So I hope it will grow over time. You know, my inspiration is like, you know, in movements, you have one thing that is important. Like you are, if you're holding the knowledge and skills, you're not building a movement. You're building a, a cult, you know? So, so the knowledge of skills, they need to be distributed really fast. And that means that there's no value in me being like a, a Ashley's teacher. Like I want Ashley to be a teacher. That's the only way for this thing to grow. Like, and, and because the magnitude of it is, so it's, it's really, really like, how do, you, how do you develop practices and skills that you can teach others so they can become practitioners, but also teachers really fast of, of those skills and practices. And there's a longstanding tradition of that in any social movement that you look in, in, in history of not just kind of like how do you teach others, but how do you teach them so they can they can teach others and they can grow together and we can all grow together. I think we need more of that and, and less of kind of like confined spaces of, well, oh, this is my practice and I'm gonna teach you and then you're gonna depend on me or whatever. Like, no, like honestly, like my mentor, Marshall Gantz, who is a professor at the Kennedy School, he's living that. Like he, he is actually doing that for for a lot of people and a lot of movements and and it's more like a, like a conversation than then it's a oh i'm teaching you and you have to be you know which is sometimes difficult in medicine because there's there's a little bit of in our code that is saying like oh, respect your teacher yeah you should respect your teacher but you also recognize that you have a you have a place in it and that, that's the practice of community organizing is the everybody has their place in it as soon as they can recognize and start practicing that place 
the better it will be for everyone. So see one, do one, teach one. This is wonderful. I want to wrap up on two questions. So one is, why do you see the climate crisis as something that healers and caregivers must lead on advocating for solutions for? It's a tough question because my question to that, like if somebody asked me that question, I would ask like, why you don't? <laughs> you know? Because it's really like, you know, think about it. Like think about like, well, I guess for, for, for people in California, it's, it's so in your face right now, like in many ways that it cannot be ignored. But I think you look around yourself and you will see it. You will see it in your patients. You know, you don't have to go further than that. Like, you know, you see the consequences of what is, what is, what is happening in, in your everyday practice and in the communities that you're a part of. So what are we going to, are we going to just look at it and say like, oh, it is what it is. And, you know, there's nothing we can do about it. Or are we going to, we going to actually step up and say like, look, there's a, it's not that we're going to provide a solution, but we do have a responsibility to act and to act alongside with others, of course, uh, to to address some of those things. And mm-hmm. and and also, like the other thing is the look. I uh, part of my work in Serbia after the democratic changes was was to work in the corruption in healthcare. You know, it's a different system, and and the corruption is is you know I know the the, the medical system here has a different expression of corruption, but over there it was really kind of like straightforward. Like doctors were doctors were taking bribe to provide the services, and it becomes really fast. It becomes an issue of social justice, like because it will you know you you can see how those who have money will pay, those who don't have money will not pay. Uh, or not get the service and, and therefore have no access. But what was interesting about it is what that was the minority of people who were doing that. Yet that was dominating, that was a dominant narrative about, the, the, about everybody. And my work, and, and we did a lot of work in, in enabling those who are silent to speak up and to say like, look, I don't, I don't expect this for my profession. And I think that's, that's what's happening in, in, in climate change right now, like especially among healthy professionals is like, we have a responsibility to speak up and to challenge the institutions that we are part of or that we have influence over. Like, you know, sometimes it could be our hospitals or our, our care centers, or it could be a, like to stop doing what they're doing. Disinvesting like from, from, from the businesses that are creating harm to our planet or, or thinking about those types of strategies. And, and it's really, really, and, and it, see, it feels like so intuitive but we cannot be complacent to that. And that was the case in Serbia. Like if you're complacent, you know, you are actually harming yourself with that. You're not helping yourself. So one of our arguments is like, how do we lift up for people to step up and take responsibility and get out of the complacency and start challenging their own? And it's hard. It's hard work because... You know, people around you, I, I know you probably know that, will ask you, why are, why, why are you doing that? Like, why, you know, why not go, like, do something? Stop talking about climate change, Ashley. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Stop, like, we are just bored with you or whatever. Like, but, it, but, but the thing is that, that if we don't do that, if we don't kind of, like, find a ways to get people out of the complacency, like, it's really hard to imagine that the change is, is possible. I feel that's the responsibility of caregivers and healers because we also have a huge influence of the community beyond us. You know, it's yeah. one thing for, for a person, you know, who is maybe experiencing some of those things on an everyday basis because they are, 
in an area that was affected by wildfires or or a draw or whatever whatever the experience of that that is is that they have. But the other thing is for their healers and, and caregivers and and those who are you know should be the advocates for that to to say that and spread that message. And I just feel mm-hmm. like everybody should do it. This is a moment where you can't take a passive role and not cause harm, that it's the yeah. inaction that is actively harming yeah. us today and all of those to come on this planet. You probably have a lot of, lot of, kind of like nerds or like uh, listeners like here. I know, know like medical profession, we always look for, give me the evidence. Like if you want an evidence for the problem with complacency, you can just Google administrative evil. There's this whole body of knowledge about you know, looking at the, the history of what was happening in, the, in, in Germany during the war, where the, the, there, there was one thing, like there was this whole experiment of obedience, like, you know, Stanley Milgram and all of that. But that was one side of it. There was the other side, which was about complacency. And, and you know, how, you know, institutions that you're complacent in are creating, they, they called it administrative evil. I think it was a cool way to call it, because basically you were saying like, oh, I'm just doing my job. And my job is to, you know, I'm not doing any any harm like directly, but by doing that, you are actually protecting the institutional evil that is uh, and harm that is created upon uh, uh, people and communities and and nature in this case. Mm -hmm. If you're interested in evidence, like there's a body of evidence uh, about that and how do you, you know, what do we need to do to to challenge that and and do something about it? I I don't think people need evidence. I think people need just to listen to their heart into their patients, into their communities, to see why they need to be part of the the climate change. Thank you. I am going to dive into that body of evidence. I would call it institution, institutional, not institutional evil, but it's like in the evil of inertia in the face of a need to change everything. Um, yeah, I didn't give that name. That was just a, that was the researchers who were doing that. They, they, but I find it to be really interesting and provocative, honestly. Like to to be kind of mm-hmm. like something. Oh, this is really. I never thought about it that way because it, it's really yeah. about that. In closing, what gifts has your community organizing, organizing for things like climate action and social and health justice, what has that given your life? Hope, you know, a lot of hope. I, I think the other thing is the humility that we don't have the answers. No one does. The only thing we can do is try to be better stewards, better protectors of the spaces for, for healing and for for connection, for relationship, those types of things. I, I think that's what I've get out of it. I tend to see that as a as a real value and a real gift. You know, I worked with the with some people over the last year in Philadelphia who were recruiting uh, people to register to vote, like the physicians and nurses and practitioners who were registering people to vote. When you see how powerful it is when people get together and you kind of like created conditions for for just that. And they start working together and they start kind of creating actions. Like it's, it's such a gift. I can only be happy about, you know, being privileged enough to, to, to get that gift and, and to feel that gift of, of kind of like co-creation and power and people power. That's the, the thing that I get most out of it. And I know that people, once they try it and they start doing it, if they're humble enough and they see that it's not about them, it's bigger than them everybody will get value out of it. And it's not just about this notion of leading. 
It's also about how do you follow? How do you how do you be part of the community? I think there's, at least in America, there's this obsession of kind of like, am I a leader or not? You know, you are a leader and you are a leader sometimes by following. That's also legit and, and important mm-hmm. and equally valuable. And I just feel like the the value of, of people power is the, the probably the, the, the biggest one that I've get out of it. It brings me back to what you were talking about in in Serbia when you were organizing with your teenage colleagues, um, the sense of agency that you got from working together and that that was like a respite from the disasters around you. And I think we can say the same today, that that agency and feeling connected is a profound gift. Just to be to be really to double click on that, it's the agency of a collective. I think there, there sometimes there's an obsession of kind of like, oh, I'm going to create the agency for myself. Yeah, which is okay. Sometimes you need that. Sometimes we all need that. But this is a different type of agency. This is the agency that you get out of the collective experience with other people. And I'm really amazed how, how resilient we are as a human beings to actually create those spaces. Think about the last year. Like everybody thought like, well, everybody would feel isolated. They are, people are, and, and there's, there's a lot of struggles. But also we find the ways to be with each other. We did find the ways to be with each other and to have some of that collective agency recreated in, in, in different ways. And I really hope that we can do more of that and, and that people can reclaim that as their own value, as something that they really need and, and they want to offer to others as well. Such a pleasure to yeah. be with you, <laughs> even virtually. And these ideas are just, they're so inspiring and I'm so grateful for the work you're doing. So we'll we'll put links to some of the things that you brought up in the notes so people can learn more, including your bio. And thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for inviting me. This was uh, also a great, a great conversation and a real pleasure to be in a conversation with you. Feeling inspired and want to get connected to health professional community organizing to protect everyone's health? If you're in California, please visit www.climatehealthnow.org to learn how to join Climate Health Now, that is a group organizing for a healthy climate in California. If you're outside California, please visit PEJA's new website, www.peoplepowerhealth.org and sign up to plug in for ways to link arms in community organizing to protect the health of everyone we love.